Hello, listeners and viewers. It's Katie. Before we get into today's show, just wanted to explain that we recorded this week's episode on Wednesday after the debate, which was obviously before the news of Trump's positive COVID test. So we weren't able to mention that. We will, of course, next week. Also, we refer to being a little bit tipsy during the episode. That's because Matt and I played one of his legendary drinking games. And we are going to be doing that again for the vice presidential debate, which amazingly enough, as of now, is still going on. That's, of course, between Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence. And that is Wednesday, October 7th at 9 p.m. And we'll start the stream at 8.30 p.m. On my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks. See you soon. Welcome to Useful Idiots. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper. Don't have my mug on me, but I do have a Useful Idiots mug. Matt has to get his. And I'm bringing that up to encourage you all to buy your own Useful Idiots merch. Of course, that's exactly what you have to do. And uh, you know what? Everybody's freaking out because of the debate. They're like, oh my God, it's the lowest moment in American history. Like, I'm, I'm panicking. Like, what are we going to do? It's so, like... It's going to get worse because we have three more. Of course, it was completely incoherent and right. embarrassing, but that's so is America. Like, right. I don't know. Um, Perfect snapshot. Perfect yeah. snapshot of the country. Thank you, guys. You did really well, Trump and yeah. Biden. You captured our our soul. I found myself. I mean, maybe I should, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe, maybe I've been doing this too long and I found it entertaining. Yeah. Uh, well, so did Michael K. Williams. Yeah, or exactly. so will Michael K. Williams. I have a sense. Well, that's a good segue. We have a great show. Right? Really great show. Uh, with uh, Michael K. Williams, a uh, star of many uh, great uh, dramatic series, uh, including Boardwalk Empire. Uh, he's in Lovecraft. Lovecraft now. And uh, of course, The Wire, where he played the uh, iconic Omar Little. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk to him about a whole bunch of stuff today. And then um, I guess we're going to go over, you know, some of the some of the craziness from this yep. week. So There's a should, lot to talk about. Should we just dive in? I yeah, guess? let's dive into the four uh, basic food groups. So it's you first then, I guess, this week, it, right? It is me. Yeah. I'm going to start with one of the many painful, terrible moments from um, the debate. Uh, Tuesday night's debate. If we could, Dan, just go to this tweet from NBC News uh, where we see Joe Biden uh, commenting on the Green New Deal. The Green uh, well, New you want to Deal rebuild every is building. not my plan. Right. I want to rebuild right. everything. If he knew anything about gentlemen, he made a statement about the military. He said I said something about the military. He and his friends made it up, and then they went with it. I never said it. Okay, that is what he true. did. Is he said he called Mr. the military Vice, Vice stupid bastards. I, I he said it on wait, tape. Uh, he said uh, stupid uh, bastards. Please, stop. I would never say that. Play it. Play it. Go ahead, Mr. Vice President answered his his final question. The final question is, I can't remember which of all his rantings. <laughs> I'm having a little trouble myself, but uh, and, and about the economy and about this question of what it's going to cost. The, the economy. The econ- I mean, the Green New Deal the, and the, the idea of what, what the, your the environmental change will do. The Green New Deal will pay for itself as we move forward. We're not going to build plants that, in fact, are great polluting plants. Do you We're support build the Green New Deal? Pardon me? Do you support? No, I don't support the Green oh, New Deal. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, that's a big statement. So what makes this awkward um, is... It's like awkward in eight different directions. Eight different w- directions, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's almost brilliant. It's almost like... First of all, a- why was he talking about it? 
if he doesn't support it. And why does his web campaign website say he does support it? So there are a couple things. One is that he says he supports it, but then he said that uh, he doesn't support it during the debate. Uh, his website does call it a crucial framework for fighting climate change. And it's also interesting because, uh, as Trump himself points out, after he said, no, I don't support the Green New Deal, Trump goes, oh, you didn't? Well, that's a big statement. That means you just lost the radical left. It's gone, uh, which is kind of funny, I, I got to say, uh, because he's actually speaking to a real problem that Biden has, which is how he's triangulating and, and shifting right. And, and yeah. allowing allowing Trump to grab that schism with both hands and pull right. it open on national television. Right. I mean, and, and he didn't he, he just he didn't have to go there is the problem. Like he, he didn't have to. Uh, start touting the Green New Deal and then abruptly turn around and start saying that he doesn't support it. It was just very right. Strange. Yeah, and he he points out it's going to pay for itself. So why not support it? Right. Uh, All the more reason. Same debate. He says that. So why not say something like, "Look, I think we can all agree that major investment in in the green economy is an aspirational goal that uh, would be good for you." You know, you know what I'm saying? Like a a, polit a typical politician right. who, uh, would do something like that. Well, Biden is not your typical politician. Yeah. I think we can all agree. That was bad. Yeah. I mean, I think what we saw last night, and this goes to the general Democrat suck thing, is that Biden is um, afraid of seeming at all progressive. He doesn't want to be called radical left. But of course, the irony is that he's going to get called that anyway. And he's really, you know, not trying to court the left. And that's I'm not just saying that because I'm someone who thinks that that's important to do politically. It's also strategic. I mean, he needs to get people to leave their houses and vote or mail in their votes. And a big issue is is motivating the base who stays home. And honestly, the things that, you know, the bolder things that Sanders proposes and to some extent Warren sometimes um, are things that are overwhelmingly popular. And they are things that I think do excite people. And the problem is when you have Biden uh, up there kind of running from both directions and trying to kind of, you know, not embrace any direction, he's kind of in the middle trying to show he's not too radical, but also he can't uh, be too, you know, pro-police, but he can't be too anti-police. You just, I don't think that, I mean, look, we can talk about this later because I think he actually did, and it's a sad statement, I think he did win the debate. I think he did terribly, but I think he won. Yeah, uh, I disagree, but yeah. But, well, it depends on how we're defining winning also. Anything else stand out for you that was particularly egregious with Biden? Given the circumstances, he's he's basically sticking to the strategy. And, oh, I, and, and yeah. I get, I, I do get the strategy. I just, right. I just think that he, you know, he has a tendency to give people openings sometimes when he doesn't have to. Yeah. But unforced uh, errors, unforced errors. Right. But Self um, goals. What is it? Cell phones. Cell yeah, phones. cell phones. But you know, with 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 this with this situation, it's pretty clear that Trump is trying to paint him as this uh, radical, you know, font of the woke movement and all of that stuff, and and Biden has reacted somewhat angrily to that uh, and said and insisted, no, I'm the person who ran against uh, that. Right. Right. And there's some truth to that. So he's, there is. Right. Yeah. So, I know. Yeah. So the, the 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 question that you have to have is where where is the uh, fine line right between 
like, losing so much enthusiasm among your base and, uh, you know, alienating the donors who you're really, no, no. To. I mean, I, th I think it would be more that they'd be worried the about pe people who are, you know, worried about cultural issues in the left. Like he, I think you could argue he won the, the primary because people were, they, they certainly weren't voting for his, his uh, sterling presentation or his policy chops or anything like that. They, it, it was his very vagueness was, was, what, was what carried the day right. for him. Yes, but I also would not underestimate the power of the, the Bernie's not electable in the general narrative. I said this Tuesday night, which is that I think that the sand there's value there are people who don't like socialism who still would have been more drawn to sanders during this debate because he does not apologize because he's so un unapologetic right and, and I, yeah. I also i also think programs like medicare for all and the green new deal they're not terribly radical and right. and those are the kinds of things that if he had leaned into right um might have been good where, where where he's running from he's he's running from the cultural issues on the other side, and um, so that's that's where the, the tension is. That's what that's what that's what Trump's trying to do. Tr yeah. Trump's trying to get him to abandon everything that has to do with the more progressive wing of the right. party because he's afraid of carrying the negatives as well as the positives. Also, another Democrat suck thing I would say is that this to me was like such a missed opportunity for Biden. Trump's whole thing about how only old people are struck by COVID is like so easy to debunk. And mm. so easy rhetorically, you just take a few stories of young people who died. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's all it would have taken. Mm -hmm. So Biden people, if you're listening to this, I know you guys are all fans of the show. Tell Joe to bring up some people who died who were young. COVID. Right. right. Very powerful. Yeah, and, uh, for Republicans suck, I guess this is, it doesn't have the import of the other thing, but uh, this, this is just something that... I've seen stories like this over the years, and it always drives me crazy when when uh, this happens. Uh, Dan, if we could open the the Murdochs, uh, go in and the Biden earpiece conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. So uh, prior to the debate, the Trump campaign and Fox News and some other outlets sort of cleverly ginned up this phony news story where basically they they challenged joe biden to, to allow an inspection of his ear to make sure he didn't have an earpiece in there that was giving him the answers for the debate and uh apparently they agreed originally to the inspection and then blew off the agreement and then this turned into a a news story which blossomed into a you know was biden being fed the answers kind of story that shot all over the internet. Yeah. Uh, Peter Ducey is reporting some interesting things. Now, I don't know if you've got these yeah. nuggets yet or not, but I'll read them for I our do. viewers. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Trump team asked to inspect the ears of each debater for electronic devices or, or transmitters. The Biden team has not consented to that. The Biden team wanted to break every 30 minutes. The Trump team said, we will not have that. Uh, what more can you fill in about those requests well, thus far? Those are significant. You know, first of all, the, the breaks are set by the debate commission. So the Trump campaign may not have agreed to it, but also the debate commission has always said that it's 90 minutes straight through, and that's how they plan for it, and that's what they told the networks. That's what we're planning for as far as our coverage. Uh, as far as the listening devices and the Biden campaign's response to that, I think that's interesting, and we're going to have to follow that through the day uh, to, you know, what comes out of that. That's basically it, and this turned into 
tweets by people at the New York Post. Day after the debate, there was, uh, you know, it became a kind of a viral story that Biden was being fed the answers. And um, even some even some sort of non-conservative media dabbled in this a little bit. Actually, there was a book. Remember, there was a Bush rumor about that. Well, right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, And so this this was like with the original version of this a million years ago was Bush had this had a, a, a mysterious bulge under his and um, so back back in the day they they couldn't report that that Bush had a bulge so or that he was getting things from a transmitter so they they did this thing where I think it was Slate did the story where they they wrote about people talking about it on the internet and then then the New York Times did a front page story about people talking about right. the story and that that's how it kind of snuck in this sort of conspiracy theory type reporting snuck in. And now it's like this trope that we just can't get rid of. You know, every time uh, you you want to gin up a conspiracy theory about cheating or whatever it is, all you need to do is pose a question to uh, whoever it is that you're attacking. Um, in this case, you know, they they asked Biden if he would agree to have his ear inspected. And once he denied it, that gives that gives you the, you know, imprimatur to go and create this story. And, um, right. and it's just it's just a sleazy way to do business. And it's particularly annoying because the Republicans have been bleeding for uh, bleeding as in the way sheep talk, sheep talk oh, uh, yeah. uh, for years now about exactly this kind of news story you know where it's all speculation right and there's and then uh then they turn around and do exactly the same thing and um you mean they've been they've been criticizing the media for making those kinds of stories exactly like, yeah right yeah i mean you, you you can factory style create uh controversies just by saying oh so and so might have done something let's ask him for a right. comment you know uh, or some anonymous person says something happened. Let's ask. Let's ask that person for comment, and then then you ha then then there's a controversy. This is exactly that kind of thing. Because Republicans don't care about being hypocrites, right? Neither do Dems, but it doesn't land. It, Republicans don't have to care about it. Dems, it's a bit like more off-brand. Slightly, yeah. It depends. It doesn't what look as good. Yeah. It depends on what Dems we're talking about, but yeah, absolutely. So, uh, should we move on to? Yep. Uh, isn't that terrible? So we got a couple of stories. One is that five hundred thousand sharks may have to die in the fight against COVID nineteen. So apparently, a nonprofit organization is estimating. This is from the Miami Herald. A nonprofit organization is estimating about five hundred thousand deep sea sharks may need to die to supply the world with a coronavirus vaccine when one proves safe and effective. A shark's liver contains oil, primarily made up uh, a compound called squalene, made up of a compound called squalene, which can also be found in plants and humans. It's largely known as a moisturizing agent in cosmetics as skin creams and lip balms, but squalene is also used in some adjuvants, common ingredients in vaccines that help create a stronger immune response. Hmm. The compound has been used in U.S. flu vaccines since 2016 and has an excellent safety record, according to the CDC. Squalene could also lower the amount of vaccine ingredients needed for each person, meaning more could be produced with less. But shark allies, not <laughs> that's capital S, capital A, shark allies, a group that fights to reduce overfishing of sharks, says most shark species will be unable to recover 
from large demand needed to produce a global vaccine. What's more, the industry has little quality control and transparency, meaning some already threatened species might die off for good. Instead, the group suggests using non-animal alternatives that offer equally effective squalene, such as yeast, bacteria, sugarcane, and olive oil. So uh, yeah, the shark allies, which I'm glad they're finally, we can finally identify the very powerful shark lobby. We now know that are officially called shark allies. They are claiming that there are better alternatives. The reason that this is horrible is because it's horrible on a couple levels. One is this is more pro-shark propaganda, um, which makes me feel like the sharks are winning. Um, and also it makes me feel like bad. I don't want to be shamed for my very justified anti-shark identity. I thought it would be, you were saying, I don't want to be shamed for taking a vaccine. Oh, I don't want to be shamed for taking a vaccine. And so basically sharks are, could be killed for their livers. And um, I don't know. I feel like the world would be better, uh, a better place uh, without sharks, but I guess that's bad for the ecosystem. So again, I'm just, I'm, I, uh, I just can't co-sign these opinions. There's all this shaming that's being done by the shark Alliance. It should be black and white. Sharks are bad. <laughs> They're not bad. They're just doing what they have to, you know, what to did get they by. Say? We, I love sharks. What did the Australian woman say when she was, after she got a little bite? Oh, what did uh, she Sharks say? are beautiful. <laughs> sharks are beautiful. <laughs> Uh, for, um, isn't that weird? I have a good one this week. You know, every now and then I don't always have the NA game with this one, but, uh, Dan, if we could see an official search for suspect who dumped dozens of eels into Brooklyn Lake and quickly just to preface this, there's two amazing things about this video. One is that it's, it's like, it's like the greatest hits of local TV news casting because, uh, you know, when they're reading this absurd story, total deadpan, it's oh, yeah. like their faces are serious and they have the, um, one of the guys has, it's sort of like a GI Joe pose, which is like a thing you see on local TV news where the guys kind of put their hands together. It's like a, uh, as they're standing, I can't even explain it. You'll see. And then, then there's this amazing video of a dude dumping eels in a lake and, uh, but let's, Let's also, shout too. out, we should shout out to Reed. Reed, Reed, Reed yeah, Reed, Reed. Who Reed, gave Reed. us this story and also said, uh, isn't that weird? I personally don't see what the big eel is. So I uh, want to thank him for his pun, punnery, yeah. That's great stuff. What's the big eel? Yo, you're not supposed to be dumping eels here, dude. All right, here we go. Added to the list of bizarre happenings in 2020, a man caught dumping dozens of eels in Brooklyn's Prospect Park Lake. Yeah, video of the alleged eel liberation is making the rounds online tonight. And News 4 spoke to the man behind the camera. Ravietta has the story. Yeah, I just love the, the, the sort of Stone Phillips thing the guy does with his head. If we can just go back for a second where, where you know, you're considering this, the, this, the serious story and you gotta, you got to kind of like do the thing with your right. eyebrows and it's just it's so Ron Burgundy. Let's look at can we look at just that part again? Prospect Park Lake. Yeah, video of the alleged eel liberation is making the rounds online tonight. <laughs> and News 4 spoke to the man behind the camera. Ravietta has the story. Yeah, right here. Dominic Pabone bringing us to this spot. Here at Prospect Lake Park, he witnessed a man dumping dozens of eels. Yeah, but that's like 100 eels. I don't care. 
Why don't you care? He saw something, said something, and recorded it on his phone. In the video, you can hear him confronting the guy. That's not legal. I saved the life. No, you're not. He's like, oh, I saved life. I saved life. I'm like, no, dude. You're just... And then he was just throwing them in as we're talking. Dominic says it happened Sunday night around 7.30. In the video, you can hear Dominic and the man's response. We don't need to call cops. No, man, this I is illegal what you're doing. Like 80 to 100 eels, just tossing them in like nothing. Dominic says he tried flagging down police, but no one stopped. I'm over here like doing jumping jacks and they're just passing by like what if I was in trouble? In a statement to News 4, the Prospect Park Alliance said in part, the release of pets and other animals in the park is illegal without a permit. It is a hazard both to those animals and the plants and wildlife that call the park home. A lot of people jog here and everything and it would be a shame to see all these dead fish and things like. Concerning the Park Alliance and park goers as well, an illegal dump affecting a beloved Brooklyn staple. I do think this is a really beloved space in the park and people really use it and uh, I don't think you should really dump anything in it. Uh, people should just respect respect the, the landscape and just like we shouldn't dump trash, we also probably shouldn't dump eels. Radiata, News 4, New York. First of all, they never explain where the eels come from. Yeah, right. What's the eel origin story? Yeah, like, if, it, as if this happens every day. People sudden they just have a need to put 80 eels somewhere, right? Like, that's just unexplained. Yeah. I, is this guy an eel rights activist? I don't understand. Like, no, eel liberation I, movement? But they, 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 they just completely blew off probably the second biggest question you would have about this whole thing right like yeah why is this guy doing this where do the eels come from like uh they they just assume that we we wouldn't worry about that part of the story right also it just shows this i think really speaks to what happens when you don't have big eel you don't have big eel the way you have big shark they don't have the PR, for, they don't have the oh, PR I see, or I lobby see. presence right, that would right. make this a very sympathetic, because I'm a guy there, I mean, I don't like eels. You don't like eels? I don't know, they're hideous. I mean, they're up there with, I guess they're like less powerful sharks. No. Well, they are they bite and they're ugly. That's true, but they're, you know, among God's creatures, right? I mean, it's, it's not their fault that they ended up in Prospect Park. But that's that story to me. Uh, that that was straight out of like every parody of TV news like that's ever been done. You know, like yeah. the day the day to day or Brass Eye. You know, like uh, it's just that that was really good stuff. I love it. I, I gotta bring. I feel like my isn't that terrible didn't land enough, and I have to bring up. And it's also been a while since we had a penis related story. And also, I feel like we need to to like make this guy James Gagne feel seen. Okay. And you told me you still have to show this to me. You're trying to keep us apart because I think you don't want to have him on the show. No, no, um, I'll have him on. All right. I want to see that tweet, but there's new news. Um, this is CBC radio uh, has an update. A man who erected a giant wooden penis on his lawn fights, erected. To, fights to keep it up. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Jamie Gagne insists it was his wife's idea to carve a giant wooden penis with a chainsaw and erect it on their front lawn, but he'll gladly fight for it in a court of law. The Montreal-born man says he first crafted the 2.1-meter-tall anatomically correct statue in June to protest the bureaucratic red tape that was preventing him from getting a permit to complete a shed outside What, what does that home. mean, anatomically correct? Is it the scale or... 
Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't know. The yeah. town stopped communicating with me, so I was getting a little frustrated, and I kind of wanted to draw their attention and kind of brute force a conversation, he said. Interesting. So he was basically suffering from blue balls, if you will, creative blue balls. But instead, he ended up in conversation with a pair of state troopers who arrested him on a charge of displaying offensive sexual material. He pleaded not guilty in court on Tuesday and is fighting to have the charges dismissed. Apparently, so Ganya says that a state trooper visited his property to have a, a, to look at it and told him it wouldn't be a problem so long as nobody complained. OK, this is from before he all and then to quote Gan, uh, to quote Gagne, he also did mention that if it was not erect, it would have been art. But an erect <laughs> penis is not art. That didn't make any sense to me. So I did think it was interesting that he mentioned this and he knew so much about penis art. Eventually, someone did. complain. This, this is the police officer who said that he's quoting the police officer. Yeah, allegedly. Um, so a police officer tells you that uh, an erect penis is not art, but, but a flaccid it, one is a flaccid one is. Yeah. Stan, I think we may just have to look at this, this view of the, of the penis because I didn't, we didn't get a close up of it last time. And I just think Matt, I feel like I would, I would be doing remiss. our viewers. I would be remiss and I would be doing my viewers and my co-host a disservice to not show this. Sorry. <laughs> So for people who are only viewing, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you this. And this is Matt. You asked what was anatomically correct about it. I'll tell you what, as Jamie Gagne said of his giant wooden penis, it has, quote, a little bit of veins and the tip is very well shaped. <laughs> the balls look ridiculous, though. I'm sorry. They, yeah. They look like blueberries or something like that. It, yeah. It, it, it's just. That's that, that it's part of it. It's much more shaped, uh, much more shaped, though, right? When you say then, then we could see from the other photos. Yes, it's uh, it, there's. <laughs> and here, there's another photo. What Matt is laughing at a photo of it of the, <laughs> the flags the on either side. Yeah, with with American flags on either side. <laughs> That should be America's now. We got to get rid of the whole e pluribus unum. I know. Eagle thing. I love the subhead. When is a penis art? I mean, when, that's a good question. I think penis art is in the eye of the beholder. So <laughs> anyway. That's that's a classic piece of journalism. Yeah, we, we can't can't have enough of that. So no. and I, I and look, he's a freedom fighter, and it's a free speech issue. And we should have him on. And the same episode, we should have Glenn Greenwald on. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I hope he gets a cabinet position. Uh, okay, so that that was the the food groups. I guess we should talk about the debate, right? So you thought he won? I do. I think he did terrible. Did terribly. Did a terrible job. But I think he won because. I think that Trump actually it Trump's rudeness and interruptions actually backfired because it made Biden look more I think what could have been what could have been seen as as uh, senility or you know uh, dementia or just like low energy stuff it it became much more understandable whatever deficits there were or whatever discombobulation there was had Trump not been so pushy uh, I think Biden would have had some of those moments anyway. It just, I think, I do think that Trump looked like a bully. And I know he always looks like a bully, but this was like more than usual. And I think it probably helped Biden 
because it was so it was so out of like it was i mean i obviously trunk breaks with norms all the time and i find that discourse frustrating but that's not my my point is not from a normative uh it's not a normative one my point is that the optics of it were that biden looked i think most people would feel frazzled in that situation i think it depends a lot on the individual voter and how they watch this because during the um during the republican primaries in 2016 trump did a version of this in basically all the debates and and his his baseline strategy was to ignore the moderators ignore the limits on the the, the time limits go over the, the limits every single time you can possibly get away hog uh, the the cameras hogged the attention. Even even though he was uh, even though he was panned and he was often described as the loser of these debates, I think cumulatively what happens with uh, with this is that audiences see that he's the aggressor, that the other person is passive, and on a subconscious level, they just they register the idea that the other person is not in control of the situation, and Trump is. And, you know, uh, probably with Republican voters that may, maybe that uh, makes more of an impression. But obviously he, he looked like a bully, like completely inappropriate. And anybody who's thinking rationally about it would, would probably find it really repugnant. But I do think this is a conscious strategy that, that he, he, he does. It's hard to get around the, the conclusion that he was just that Biden was just not in control of the situation. Also, the the almost universal calls the next day for we should cancel the next debates um you know coming from the democratic side or we should we should change this process or maybe maybe he should bow out of that that doesn't look like they feel like he won the event right you know? again i yeah i mean i think that it would have more like it would be stronger if trump hadn't acted like such a kind of like such a dick, which I know is his thing, but I just found it a little bit more dickish than usual. And so I think it lends more. I, I mean, the other thing is Biden, Biden is if he is really ahead, right, which the polls show he is, although they showed that last time with Hillary, but like they both look like idiots. They both look bad. I'd say Trump looked like a much worse person. The real issue is whether or not it's going to change things up. I don't think it'll change things up that much. All, all I'll say is that the conventional wisdom about exactly this kind of thing in tooth in tooth in what you know again we saw this every after every single debate in 2016 and remember uh there was almost universal horror about trump's behavior um after each one of the early ones in particular remember the whole like you know she had blood coming out of her, her wherever thing with the rosie o'donnell situation people were like Oh my God! That you know he he won't recover from that, and he went right up in the polls after that. Yeah, you know? it's so, true. Yeah, so we'll have to uh, check in on this. We'll have to see how it how it goes. But he was he was much less restrained with Biden than he was with um, Hillary. Hillary. Yeah. I guess the other thing was we we got to talk about are the the controversies that emerged from it. Trump sort of unprompted, and this this was this was later in the debate. Uh, when we were already pretty much in the bag. Uh, but uh, Wallace asked him, will you urge your supporters to stay right. calm during this extended period, not to engage in any civil unrest? And uh, will you pledge that you will not declare victory? 
And Trump did like three things in response to this that felt both rehearsed and, you know, were, were a little disturbing. So his answer is, I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that that's what has to happen. I'm urging them to do it. As you know, today there was a big problem in Philadelphia. They went to watch. They're called poll watchers. It's a very safe, very nice thing. Uh, they were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. Uh, you know why? Because bad things happen in, in Philadelphia, blah, blah, blah. So, and he, he repeats this over and over again. I'm, I'm, I'm urging my people to go out, right? That's as close as you're going to get to somebody just outright urging someone, urging his supporters to voter intimidation, you know, especially in conjunction with the question about civil unrest. And, the, and that was definitely something that was delivered with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge type of situation. And I think he meant that one a lot. Uh, I mean, he he meant to send that message. That that wasn't on. That wasn't prompted. I thought that one was that one was really disturbing. I mean, the other one being the Proud Boys one. Proud Boys yeah. stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Yeah, I think that that combined with what you just cited makes it especially um, scary. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't Proud Boys feel emboldened by that and emboldened to dress up their they're white, you know, whatever the Western Nash chauvinism, as they call it. Right. Um, that's a pretty, you know, patriotic way of, of doing it, protecting election integrity. His his telling Proud Boys to stand by and his refusal to and his incur open encouragement of people to go, you know, protect, quote unquote, protect poll workers, I think does have a voter suppression. Um, this is going to be an epic shit show. I mean, I, I, I was on a. um you know, like a British talk show today, and they were asking, well, could this end up like 2000? And this is way more, this is going to be way more complicated than 2000, because in 2000, we, we really just had a couple of different issues. We had a, a vote count problem in one county, and then there was, then it became a state, uh, but it was all resolved through the courts, and there was a procedure for doing that, right? Here, we're going to have nationwide a problem with arguments over these mail-in ballots, right? And we, we have multiple states that have already basically said that the results aren't going to be in that night. Meanwhile, you have the administration insisting that they're going to have to be in that night. So we're guaranteed to have a conflict that's going to go on all over the country. And I I don't. I don't even know how you resolve it. Plus, you add you add the the possibility that we're going to have a a four four Supreme Court at the end of all this. It just seems just it just feels like a giant mess is coming. That's all. So there are often times where I feel like people are being hyperbolic about Trump stuff, and this is sadly not one of them. The only thing we can hope is Trump often talks a lot bigger game than. But the but but with this situation, it's not even going to be him. It's going to be people who are going to show up at these polling places. I think all we can say right now is that they've set the stage for a very very chaotic election night. Yeah. You know, we just have to hope that people don't uh, don't go crazy. Right. Anyway, all right. Well, um, look, it was a depressing week. Not a shining moment for. For us as Americans, I wouldn't no. say. Although, like, let's be honest, we haven't been shining for a while, but this is particularly unshiny, particularly dull. Uh, all right, so we have a um, a great guest. Yeah, great guest. Michael K. Williams, actor, activist in countless movies, countless shows, most notably, uh, of course, The Wire, 
uh, Lovecraft, Empire Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire. Both of them. Uh, both of them. Uh, it's the sequel and the prequel. When They See Us, Gone Baby Gone. Going to talk to him about what he's up to. I think he's. I think he's the only. I mean, I have. I have a Michael Kenneth Williams shirt. Oh wow! It just says "Indeed" on it. But no, he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if anybody who's watched The Wire knows, like, I, he was really the heart and soul of that. Anyway, it's it's going to be a really interesting interview. We're really honored that he agreed to come on. Let's talk about a whole bunch of things, including his reaction to that crazy debate last night. So let's uh, see what he has to say. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's such an honor to have you on. And uh, again, apologies in advance if Matt fanboys out too much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm also a huge fan. But wanted to talk before we, we got into kind of what you're working on and, and, you know, Lovecraft in particular, which is such a great show and has such a raises so, so many important issues and brings forth the really important discussion about American history and racism and, and really applies to what's happening today. Uh, unfortunately, you are, are pretty politically involved. I'm not sure how much people know about this about you, but you are, for instance, a UN, um, uh, an ACLU ambassador. In your Twitter bio, you link to a GoFundMe for um, a project that's supporting NYC Black and Latino youth leaders. Can you talk about how your political consciousness developed, if you've always been politically involved? And that. Katie, thank yeah. you for your question. Um, I struggle really, really hard with the word, um, anything with my name attached to the word uh, political. Um, I really struggle with that. Um, all I am is someone from my community investing in my community and my, the greatest asset in my community, which is our youth. That's all I'm doing. And if, and if we're not doing that as a community, no matter what your, your race is or where you come from, then what are, what are you doing? So, um, thank you for the, the accolades that I don't, you know, I leave the politics to the politicians. Yeah. Uh, however, um, how I got started with this whole thing um, was uh, about four years ago, uh, yeah, a little over four years now, um, uh, President then President Obama had invited me to the White House to discuss uh, criminal justice reform. So two things, myself and about 30 other people. And uh, so two things happened. One, I started to geek out because I had finally been invited to the White House. And then I started to tweak because I was like, what the heck am I doing here? I, I don't know anything about this. And more more sadly, I felt my voice didn't matter. I didn't have any power. Like, I'm just an entertainer. What do I know? What can I say? And um, I started to have a, a nervous reaction right there in the room. And my mentor, uh, Michael Skolnick, he, he saw that I was struggling. And he said, Mike, relax. Um, you, you've earned your seat here. It's the people closest to the problem that are usually the ones closest to the solution. And my light bulb went off and I just, I, I immediately, I felt my value in that, in that one moment. Um, I left there looking at my life and wondering how did, how, how did people in my community end up in these situations? And although I, I never personally been incarcerated, I've been visiting people in prisons, my loved ones in prison since I was 17 years old. I'm still, uh, visiting when I can't, well, you know, Corona, we can't anymore, but I'm a long way from 17 is what I'm trying to say. And, um, I took all of this to my producers and my, my colleagues over at Viceland. And I was like, guys, you know, how, what's, what, what is this? I just asked the question why. And, um, you know, it's a group of white men and they just 
nonchalantly said, they asked me first, Michael, um, well, how old were your friends and family when they first started to get touched by the system? And I told them their age. They were all minors. And they just nonchalantly said, oh, that sounds like the school to prison pipeline. And I was like, what? Like, how do you say those words in one sentence? What is this? What, what do you mean, school to prison pipeline? So um, we, we went on a journey to find out what that was, um, how it works, and who it affects. And um, that resulted in a documentary that we named uh, Raised in the System. And it was then... It was on that journey and the people I met on the way um, to me educating myself about this is that I started to find my voice and find my purpose. Uh, um, when HBO stopped the, uh, you know, the rollout, the official Hollywood rollout, um, I looked at my nephew um, who spent 20 years in, incarcerated and he, he can, he's home now. He, was, um, he got a salutation from Governor Cuomo. I looked at him and I said, Dom, are you ready to do the real work? Meaning... He says, yeah, uncle, let's go. And we took the documentary and started going into the community and screening it in the projects, in the churches, in the police departments, whoever, I would go in your basement and screen it. Whoever wanted to watch, we would screen it there. And more importantly than just screening it, we would have these diverse um, panels and we would just get the discussion going on and getting people to, to, um, to, um, to, uh, to, uh, uh I guess I identify with what they were watching and find a, a voice to, to speak on what they had experienced in, in regards to what was being shown in the docs. It was then that I met, uh, we met our, our friend and business partner, Dana Racklin, who started this, she had an organization, she started a, a nonprofit in New York City called NYC Together. And her platform basically is working with the youth in our community, youth who have been touched by the system and um, NYPD, and not just our police officers, but high-ranking police officers. And we would put our youth and our police officers together to get them to come up together with, um, with ideas of reimagining what public safety looks like and how we can better work together as a community. Police, co the police department and, and, and our community come together as one to start to turned down the, 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 the ratchetness and what was going wrong in regards to the, to the relationship between the two. And that's the work that we're still doing today. Uh, COVID came out of nowhere. And just like everybody else, we got side swiped with this, with this pandemic. And um, it resulted in a lot of things for our youth in New York. One was the, um, the funds for the summer youth employment program had, had, got, had gotten cut severely. So Dana and Dominic and I, we, we got together and we started up, we raised funds to employ 25 youth from our community over the summer. And what we did was we hired them to, and we socially distanced them to come up with um, um, ideas and reimagining uh, campaigns around what, what safety in regards to the COVID era looks like for, 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 their, for our community and for their generation. And we also, um, and we engage them in reimagining public safety and, and ideas around how this thing works. And that, that was very successful. That was the summer that ended just uh, at the second we ended, we ran it for, I forget how many weeks, like six weeks. And it ended in August. Um, our new, our new um, program that we've recently launched is um, a program called Operation Crew Count. And that is the answer to Operation Crew Cut. 
uh, a few years back, I believe in, in 19, uh, 26, 2016, 2015, um, uh, they had the NYPD, I believe with uh, Mayor Bloomberg, excuse me, they started this program called Operation Coup Count. And what that did was that expanded the gang database to 40,000 names and still counting. This, this is still in play right now today. About 300 names a week get added to this, this gang database, unbeknownst to the community, and it is weaponized and used against us. So things like stop and frisk and, and you know, all those things that, 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 that fall under this was designed to, uh, to create this, this gang database and to, to, to feed the, the, the pipeline, if you will. So we are engaging our youth right now. We're holding these uh, rallies around the city, around Brooklyn. Our first one was just last weekend where we are engaging our youth. We give them the resources and the finances to, um, to build our block, to rebuild what's called build a block. And that's what we're doing right now. We build a block and our youth are, they're engaging their blocks to get voted, to, um, to um, be counted in the census. And we play music. We had a marching band. It's communal. And it's so beautiful. And our goal is to match the 40,000 names on the gang database with registered voters and, and, and censored and, and, and registered census of uh, young people in our community. So that's what we're in the process of doing right wow. now. We're going to run this straight through to the mayoral election in 21. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that's a that and people in case people don't know about why that's so dangerous. I mean, you have people who are just locked up for so long for being not even like do, not even committing any serious crimes if they can you know like there was this famous case the bronx 120 where they just locked up went after 120 kids in the bronx on conspiracy charges using rico and it was like it was really a terrible thing and um exactly part of the prison to school to prison pipeline that you're talking about yes, and just ruins communities besides the individual lives of those locked up and also stop and frisk one of the one of the worst things about it was that it gathered intelligence for programs exactly like that the whole idea was to find out who was hanging out with who every time they did a stop so that that, that was bad i i, I want to ask about your your work with um the aclu uh, with mass incarceration but your, your answer just now uh, also prompts another question that that just came up uh, given everything that happened this summer with all the different police incidents what do you think the, the message of The Wire was about what's wrong with policing? I mean, you must have thought about it uh, a lot since the end of that show and maybe in particular this summer, because it always seemed to me that what, what they, a lot of what they were saying was that the statistics regime really ruined uh, policing and made it more far more in, uh, inhumane than it, than it could be. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts were about that. Well, that's a great question. And, uh, and um, one of the things I had to go back and look at the wire for um i remember there was i forget what season or what episode but i remember the word compstat i had to go back and look at what that meant so um part of the problem with policing and and let me just go on record saying we need good police i am not anti-police i am not like you know i, I am for um defunding and not so much defunding but reallocating right however um uh the the it needs to be reformed. The system that the system in which the police department um, operates on is, is, is severely broken. Well, not really broken. It's designed to do exactly what it is doing, but that's the problem. So, um, 
you look at the word Comstat, Comstat is a program that that is uh, within the union, the police union, and it forces police officers to 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 act in a certain way. So, say if um, I'm if you're a police officer and I'm in the union or I'm your superior, and there's a there's a lot of and you work in a high crime community, if you cannot show me that you have tried to stop the the, the crime by showing me summonses, showing me arrests, showing me all the times you stopped and frisked people in the community. If you cannot show me statistics that you've been doing that, that means that I, I could say you haven't been doing your job officially and I could bring you up on, um, you know, you could be brought up in you know, scrutiny. It brings upon scrutiny on the department and sometimes even reprimandment. And, and it is a toxic, environment to expect police officers to work under as opposed to looking at why people in the community are doing certain things we're not looking at the issue of poverty the issue the issue of of lack of resources and things of that nature we're just looking at the what's and and if force comps that is is in place to only allow uh police officers to look at the what what they're doing and if, if they cannot um provide proof that they were trying to create an antidote for it by just arresting it away, which we've seen that doesn't work, then it, you know, they get, they get, they get reprimanded. So that's, that's the first thing we need to start looking at is how the police department operates and, and Comstat needs to be severely overhauled. The union, I don't even, I, I don't even know where to begin with that. It, it's, it's just toxic. You know, we cannot ignore the fact that, the police union was was built. The foundation of which those those system was created was based on slave catchers. So yeah. so I, I don't even need to even speak any further that it needs to be to be fixed. But going even further, when people like myself, when we talk about defund, again, I want to be clear. I am not saying get rid of the police department. What I am saying is, you know, for instance, New York City's police budget is about six four to six um, a billion dollars a year. I mean, come on. I think we overuse our police department, especially in communities like where I come from. We should not be calling police for my son who has mental health issues. We should not be calling police for my nephew who wants to smoke weed and his friends in the hallway. We should not be calling police for my, for my, my daughter and her girlfriends who are practicing Beyonce um, moves in the hallway and maybe try to have the music a little too loud. These are quality of life issues that I believe if given the chance, us as a community, we should be given the resources and, and the funds to be able to speak to those situations without having to call the cops because it, that it's not working. It's just not working. Yeah. And they shouldn't be doing so many of those things. Like you mentioned, if you, you know, in terms of mental health, it's not good for anyone to have police show up. It's not good for the police. It's not good for the people. It's not good for their families. So I think you're right when I think it's an, the idea is, you know, reallocating, reinvesting um, so that those people and those programs that deal with stuff like mental illness or homelessness have more resources. And, the, and, and, and I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, there's also my mom, my mom's a Caribbean woman. I'm, I'm first right. generation. My mom always says uh, prevention is better than cure. Yeah. You know, we have we have a lot of good people in our community and we call them violence interrupters like Bivo in Brooklyn, like um, Life Camp in, in Erica Ford, what she's doing in Queens. These are organizations. They, they, they speak the vernacular. 
and they have the training to get in there and defuse a lot of the situations before they become crimes, but they don't have the resources. And, and, you know, this may sound radical, but I just recently found out that um, the 911 call switchboard is owned by the police department. It, it's, it's a conflict of interest and there's too much pressure on them. We can't say we want help from the community and don't, and don't call them when, when their number is up, you know, you know, when, when the 911 calls in comes in, there should be a, 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 a independent switchboard that if it's a, if it's a, if it's a mental health thing, we have someone, you know, and, and allocate those calls as to the professionals as they're needed and leave the policing, the crime fighting to the police. And, and, you know, that's, I think that's the, if we could start there, I think that would make a huge difference in what we're seeing now. How much control did you have over or input into building Omar's character? Uh, I always felt like with the script in it with a different actor, you brought like so much humor and sensitivity to the to the role. Um, if it had been somebody else, it would have been just kind of a, a, a trademark scary figure but was that a lot a lot of that you and did you get did you have a lot of input into things like i don't know the clothes he wore in that crazy courtroom scene and uh with with maury levy and everything like that uh how much of that was you and how much of that was the script everything that you see on on that screen was um from the mind of david simon um i could i take no credit for that the only thing uh, obviously, I bought the performance, but in, it was in the performance, and, and thank you for acknowledging that. In the performance, what I, what I, what I bought was the. Um, I knew that anyone that knows me knows that I'm a softy, and my my biggest fear was Mike. How are you going to get people to believe that you're a stone cold killer? Because I, <laughs> I I'm not, you know. And so um, I had to find an end to the mind of Omar, and for me, it was his sensitivity. Uh, I believe that what what makes you vulnerable makes you volatile, and um, I understood Omar's hurt, his pain, his sensitivity. I understood his moral compass, and I um, I tapped into that. I tapped into that. You know, they say never corner a, a, a scared animal because that's when you 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 you, you probably get your wake up call. And you know, never corner Omar. He he's a he's a um, never mess with his family. I understand that you mess with my mom or my kids. I'm gonna go crazy on you. I'll, you could you could do what you want to me. Leave my family alone. And so it was in that, you know, Omar knew how to love. He had a heart of gold, and I understood that. And so I tapped in there, and that was my end to the mindset of this of this character. And everything else just flowed. And you're you're playing. I wouldn't say it's an opposite character now in Lovecraft, but there there probably are some similarities, right? Like Montrose, as a young person, doesn't get to be who he wants to be. He's kind of an outcast, and he's going through like this difficult phase of of uh, learning who he is. By the time we meet Omar, he's already not afraid to be who he is, right? Maybe he went through that process earlier in his life, but we just don't see that. Um, are, are there parallels between those characters at all, or, or uh, how do you, how do you how do you see the your, your role in Lovecraft? There, there are definitely a, a few parallels. They're um, they're both they're, they're frustrated. You know, Omar got to a point where he just said, you know, this is who I am. He, you know, sadly he just accepted the cards that was dealt him. Um, 
you know, he came in some ways he became a product of his environment in in a way. But there was a there was a, a confidence that he had about who he was that Montrose um didn't have. And you know, because of the, the sign of the times. When we meet Montrose, he you know, he's severe trauma. He 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 survived the Tulsa massacre. The family was moved to the south side of Chicago, which is kind of like moving into a war zone within itself. Um, and this is all going down during uh, 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 Jim Crow, the Jim Crow era. You know, that's who they are as a family. That's who this man is when we meet him. And dear God, you know, he dare he have the audacity to try to find out who he is as a man and what his place is in society, you know, with all that's going on in the outside world. We look at, you know, the way he he's so angry, the way he beat his son. That was because that what was done to him. And he in his mind, he thought he was helping his son by, you know, you we are not allowed to show weakness. We're not allowed to be soft. We're not allowed to be vulnerable. That's what you see. Montrose is this exterior and it's killing him. You know, um, he you know, he's he's on the verge of becoming an alcoholic. You know, all of that is by is swallowing the pain, swallowing the pain of not being allowed to just be. You know, in episode five, and in the in the ballroom scene, a lot of people equate that with uh, Montrose coming out. I'm like, no, no, we Montrose is nowhere near. You know, he he doesn't have the he doesn't have he doesn't have what it takes to wrap his mind his psyche around coming out. What you saw there for a brief moment is freedom, unmediated freedom. He's been told how to be. I'm so sorry. He's been told how to be by his family members, by society, you know, and us as black men or as men of color, you know, we're told what masculinity looks like, what it means to be a man, you know, uh, things, characteristics like being, being vulnerable and soft and, 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 and um, sensitive. They're not things that are celebrated from black men in the community in which we come from or in the outside world. And, and, what we see is in Montrose as a character are the ramifications of all that arrested development. And in that one moment in that ballroom scene, he just like, he just takes off the hair and makeup, the, everything. He just, he let go for a brief moment. It wasn't about coming out of the closet sexually. It was just about freedom and it being a room full of people that did not judge him. And, right. and we just got a brief moment of that. And then it, it goes away. It goes right back away. Did you anticipate, especially like with, with Omar's character, did you anticipate that you'd become kind of an LGBTQ icon? <laughs> um, no, I, I, you know, I didn't even, I didn't even think of it. Um, I didn't think about that at all. Honestly, um, I was too, too concerned with what Omar did for me um, as, as, as a human being, as a black man. Omar was a, gave me a lot of freedom. Um, I, I, I wished I had the uh, the balls to be who I was growing up. Um, I, I recently was um, in a photo shoot with this uh, young man. Um, his name is Alton, Alton Mason, um, dark skin, like 20 something year old kid. And we were doing a photo shoot and um, we got to talk and he was telling me that he was a fan of mine. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, you know, kid, there is something about you that oddly reminds me of myself. I says, he says, what? I says, 
you know, you I re, you remind me of myself. Just um, you have way more confidence than I do when I was your age. And he looked at me like, "What?" I says, "Bro, I said you are unapologetically black and beautiful. You know, um, your skin tone, your melanated, your full, your, your nappy afro. It's just you know the way you dress, your swag. He came in with his his rainbow colored snake skin boots, and you know he just had this way about him. He was strong in his softness and his he he was just unapologetically himself. I looked at him, I said, that's the way you are on the outside is what I felt like on the inside when I was your age, but I was, it was beat out of me, was beat down for me to hide that because of the community of which I grew up in. And, and um, so when I got the opportunity to play Omar, um, okay, I, you know, you know I've, I've done a little bit of everything, had a little bit of everything done to me, right? But Omar's freedom, his ability to be himself, his, his ability to not care what anyone thought about him in the community and dare to disrespect him. I didn't have that, that, that courage. You know, I, for me, it was, um, I had a huge need to be accepted and a very low self-esteem. So when, when I got the character of Omar, it was a way to, um, to let that inside out, it, it, you know, just to, you know, to, I understood his softness. I understood his sense of, his sense of, sensitivity i understood his vulnerability and um i admired his strength and it's his foundation he helped me that that character helped me to find myself mm. and um gay straight it doesn't matter I, I you know it's about owning who you are omar owned who he was good bad and ugly and um playing that character gave me the ability to start to do that in my own personal life is it possible to play a role too well? Like I've read about actors who have played iconic roles, you know, that everybody in the world knows, you know, whether it's Leonard Nimoy doing Mr. Spock or whatever it is, and that follows them forever. And they, they end up having kind of a, sometimes an uneven relationship with that character over the years because they did it so perfectly that it had an impact. Uh, is, Omar is clearly one of those characters that's that you know everybody who grew up during that period, this period, who watched cable remembers. Do do you have a complicated relationship with 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 that character now? Do you think about that at all? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, a lot of my characters, um, people often uh, praise me for picking the roles that I do, but in reality, I don't pick these roles. These, these characters choose me. Um, and so that on typecast, right? Yeah, you talk Yeah, they pick me, and I believe I'm. This is um. The universe gives me opportunities to heal myself in these characters. Um, with with for instance with Manchos, uh, I didn't. I knew how to pull from my personal trauma or my personal experiences um to breathe life into my characters. Manchos, um, that character let me know that I also have generational trauma. I have trauma from things that I don't know, things that I did not experience physically in this life that affect me. And um, you, you, I call them generational trauma. And, and Manchos let me know that. And I had to realize that just because the director yells cut, or that's a wrap, that that energy or that trauma once it's awakened, it does not just dissipate into the into the atmosphere. I have residue on me that I need to um, take a look at, and I got really chipped up uh, with with the character of of, of Montrose. You know, and it's it's no secret. Um, 
that I struggled with addiction. Um, I'm in recovery. And um, for me, a lot of times, if I didn't, when I was given the opportunity to do the work, if I did not look at that, I was more than likely going to relapse, which is um, uh, 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 happened a lot in my in the past. You know, when the show would end, or if the scene was too intense, there were there were times when you know the wire. You know, there was a lot of um, I struggled a lot with Omar, especially toward the end when it was time to to give him back. When it was when the show was over, and I had to put that that uniform down. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't have the tools because um, I hid behind it. It felt good, this freedom of just being able to, you know, you know, be unapologetically whoever I was. I didn't know how to do that. I worried what people thought about me. And so, yeah, you know, these characters, they definitely uh, bring me a little close to the fire, which is myself. And um, I've decided to, you know, um, stop running from that and to and to look at it and hopefully heal and and um, and and get a little bit better is there a certain uh thing that you do like if, is it meditation therapy yes all of the above yeah especially I, and again i um i just recently got the memo I, I just thought that you know when the job was over everything was done and i wonder why do i want to have a drink all of a sudden why do i i feel like just going down the rabbit hole or going into my dark place because i'm not recognizing that I need tools. So I had to expand my, my toolbox. I had to, you know, and, and build it out a little bit more. One was um, meditation. Two was therapy. I had to learn how to, I, I need help processing the feelings and the emotions that I'm going through. You know, my mind doesn't understand that I'm acting. All it knows is it being, the trauma is being awoken and that has physical and emotional and mental impact on me. So I need help to process that. So therapy is, is paramount in my life now. I meditate. Um, I keep my, um, when I'm on set and I'm doing these heavy, intense emotional scenes, I keep my crystals on me. And um, I have grounding techniques where, you know, I tether myself and, and you know, and, um, you know, I breathe. I learned that the, the, the concept and the, the, the importance of, of how to breathe to keep my spirit, you know, certain way. And, um, I, I practice that even though the, even I keep that I keep that going even though the job is I'm not working right now I keep those those um those those uh practices going in my personal life. That's funny. It reminds me of what you just said about your mom saying prevention is better than the cure. And it's kind yeah. of like if you you know I've been there where it's like oh I'm upset about something let me deal with that and then once I'm not upset about it anymore I'll put that practice to the side. But actually, if you always if you're doing it, then you actually you know you you're, you want to go there and look at the trauma, but it also helps you to be more doing it from a more grounded place. Yeah. I saw this uh, the the video that you did uh, the typecast video, which was so interesting. It's like, it's basically you sitting in a room with all the different characters that you've played, and you're having a dialogue with them. And there's this really interesting moment where. The, the person who's supposed to be you kind of nervously says, but I chose all these roles, right? And, you know, Omar and all the other, and Chalky are all kind of challenging you. Did, did you really, uh, what were you trying to say with that video? And what, what, what do you, what do you think that meant? You know, um, it got to a point right after the wire, I started getting asked by people in, in my community, meaning my, my, my professional community, you know, 
that that cat was a great job book, man. You'll be careful now. You aren't you afraid of being typecast? And I was like, I'm afraid of not eating. Like this is my <laughs> job. What do you mean? Like I'm, I'm I don't understand. What is this? What do you mean being typecasted? Like you know, I don't get to assimilate into any other experience. I am a dark skinned melanated uh, uh, a black man. This is this is this is it. This is my vehicle. So I didn't I didn't understand. The, the question until I had to to look at where it's coming from, and I was like, you, you know, I you know, I wondered. I I started to wonder, are do 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 other people like you know the do the white people in Hollywood are that are they, that do the do the same? Are they afraid of being typecasted? It, it's because of the um. It's not so much. It's it's the type of roles. Like I I give voice. I have I've been in a position. I've been blessed to be a voice for for the voiceless. You, you, you know the, the the stories that I tell with my vehicle are people who come from marginalized, you know, poverty-stricken communities with with you know, and no one cares, no one cares what you know what's really going on in the hood. So I get to be a voice for that, and it's a I wear that with a badge of honor. So when I started to, when I started to unpack that question as what does it mean to be typecast, I was like, oh, this is the same thing as if they're saying. If you and I are men of color and we come from the same community, you know that we're going to have the same experience. We're going to both end up in jail. We're both going to come from broken homes, and we're both going to, you know, probably end up on drugs or selling drugs. It's it's stereotyping. So I started to realize, oh, this is not just about in my job. Me, this is going into everything of where I come from, who I am, and I made it my business to not worry about doing different roles, but to make sure that the roles that choose me, to make sure I play, I make sure each one of them are individual characters in each, with their own individual experience in this, this game of life and not allow Hollywood or anyone to, to put them in a box, you know, and, and that's what that, that meant to me. Oh. Did you watch the debate? Yes, I did. What did you What did you think about Sorry it? Sorry about that. Speaking of healing, <laughs> speaking of healing and trauma. <laughs> um, to be honest, um, I found it entertaining. You no, know, I, I got a few chuckles. Um, uh, to be blatantly honest, it made me laugh a few it's times. It's okay. You're in a safe okay space. We actually did a drinking. <laughs> we did a drinking game last night just to give you a sense because we needed to get through it, you know, and laugh instead of know? cry. Yeah, exactly. So we, did, we live streamed us watching it and drinking at certain lines. Yeah, I should have been there with you guys. Yeah, yeah next time, night. come on, come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'll take you up, but I'm dead serious. But um, what did I think about it? Um, it was sad. It, it was it was sad in a word in full transparency i i'm just not going to fall for the okie doke um you know um i i was one of those people in 2016 that says you know well you know i'm not crazy about hillary but i know that he's not going to win and um here we are so uh, i'm not going to do that i'm not going to make that mistake um this year, I'm going to make my voice count, and I'm going to I'm going to make my platform count as best as I can. And um, I wouldn't want to be a vice president, uh, Biden. That was a tough gig last night that he had navigating through that. I don't. I just pray. I pray that that uh, President Trump he he finds it in his heart to understand how his words affect people in this country. Um, the whole um 
stand stand back and stand by um that was so scary it's scary it, it frightened me and um i just i pray that that you know that his heart that god soften his heart and speak to him until this election or whatever it's going to be in november on november 3rd i just pray for this country to find healing and to find peace yeah, and stop with the divisiveness we, we this is not sustainable and you know i walked away with that last night i felt i felt sad for us as a nation there was a, i was embarrassed because that the world was watching last night and um i'm just i'm just really praying that we find our way back to the center of what we, we, we've lost our way right now and i don't know what what the future holds but um i just know that this is not sustainable and when you said that you're not going to make that mistake again do you mean that you um you're going to use your platform to mm -hmm. voice support of of biden or you're going to vote what do, what do you mean yes i'm voting i didn't i didn't i you know i don't i'm, I'm transparent i'm not a perfect person i I, I was one of those people that missed the, the missed the memo in 2016, and I just um, decided um, for me as a black man uh, um, coming out of the Obama administration, it was it was hard for me to pivot from you know all the hope and promise that his administration meant for someone like me to what it went to, and I just kind of just I threw in my towel, and that was um, that was ignorant on my behalf. And I, I won't make that same mistake this time around on November 3rd. Could I just ask um, really quickly uh, about what you think the impact of the, of the Wire might, might have been on television and movie making going forward? Because in the 80s and 90s, it was sort of standard for, I think, people in the film business to say you have to dumb down the content because audiences just can't handle anything that's too complicated or too intense and the wire went completely in the other direction and, and you built this gigantic sort of labyrinthine plot that was really the con the politics were extremely complicated and subtle <laughs> and the, the, the characters weren't were, were not uh caricatures at all right they, they were all very you know developed do you think it created a space to do more serious interesting in-depth uh kind of dramatic filmmaking because uh, it was really it, it felt like it was a pioneering and, and were you aware of that by the way was the cast aware of that at, at the time no we were not and and to, to answer your question absolutely 100 percent. the term the wire coined the term or created the term in my opinion novel tv uh the wire read like a like a really good novel it it, it, it was just you know um it, people you know, up and before the wire, uh, episodic television. You know, you know, you had you had your hour, and you could you could set your you could set your watch by the storyline up at the time. So you know, if the show started at nine o'clock, you know, by nine twenty, you're going to get your first clue. Right. It, it may it may fall apart at nine forty, but then nine forty five, they're going to get the second clue, and then they're going to be on their way to get the bad guys by nine fifty. You know, and then you know the you know. Boom, and you get your nice little bow by 10 o'clock, you know, go to bed, see you next week. The Wire was um, messy. It was it was just a mess, and it was it was all types, of, all shades of gray, which is what li life is. Life is not black and white, and not all good people are bad, and not all bad people are good. And The Wire was the first time, in my opinion, that we saw 
uh, TV show speak to that reality and that 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 reality of human 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 interaction. Um, another thing that Dwight was first, David, uh, I heard him say one time that they were in Hollywood. People were asking, "Where are all the black actors?" You know, we you know, we you know, we would hire them with you know, and and so David was like, "Oh well, here they go," and um, the answer we got was, "Well." Kudos for picking people off the street, playing themselves. You, you, you know, the, and if we, the Wire. None of us, not one actor on the Wire, was ever nominated for anything. David got nominated for his writing, but to me, the message was, well, you know, the the, the writing is why they're so good because he picked up people out the streets to play themselves, right. and um, and yes, we did. <laughs> not seeing anything wrong with that either. But that wasn't the case with all of us. And even if that was the case, we should, I believe we still should have been um, acknowledged for the work that we did on The Wire. Yeah, I believe that David changed the, the, the way we tell a narrative. And one of the most brilliant things I thought that the producers did with The Wire was um, they didn't use music to drive your emotion. There was no cue the violin scenes. It was just gritty. You, if you, you could hear the crickets cricking. On if you know if it was so real, and if you heard music, it's because it was in the scene. It was someone's radio playing. Right, it, it was in the SUV. Right, as you're driving. Yeah, man, yeah, it yeah. wasn't this, this behind it. This, you know, the you know, so, and that was the first time I'd ever seen that. And yeah, so. And you listen to music to get yourself amped up for the scenes, right? Like you, I think Omar listened to Biggie a lot, right? Was it was the idea, or? Um, Omar listened to to Biggie Smalls. He also listened to uh. Um, Lauren Hill, she mm. had this album. Uh, it was called the Unplugged album. Mm. It was one of the most rawest um, pieces of work I, I still to this day have ever heard. Uh, it just she stumbled through every ounce of that that entire album, and I would just listen to that album over and over again. Another person who Omar listened to was a uh, Michelle and Did Cello. They listen to her. There's a place called Cookie Monster or with the monkey on the, the album cover. You know, his, his you know, Nas, um, Young Jeezy. I remember a lot of um, a lot of scenes. Those were my like my go to for my playlist whenever I would get engaged with Omar. But music is my portal. That's that's my that's my spaceship to find to breathe life in, into these characters, find the emotion that I need. Um, and I, I still use music to this day. And what about dancing? I still do my little two step. I, you know, yeah. I, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have the need to, uh, to, you know, I, dance was a way to get it out of me. I had so much pain and anger and frustration when I was younger, and um, so I was, I was a hack as a dancer. I, for, you know, the, what I considered dancers, they train their body and they, they work on this craft, and this skill. I, you know, I was a hack. You would show it to me a couple of times. I had a, a knack for catching choreography, but it wasn't like I was a, you know, like I trained my body really to dance, but I needed it. I needed to, um, to express myself and I needed to get rid of the energy that I had as a young man. And uh, I look back at a lot of the, the dance that I would do. I was, you look at me, it looked like I was fighting. My choreography always looked like I was fighting because I had so much frustration. And um, yeah, so, but yeah, I've, I've learned to channel that now into my into my work as an actor. And uh, last thing, do, do, what do you have coming up? Is there anything exciting that we should be looking for? You know, I am really excited. Um, 
so my little brother, uh, Davison Ferrer, uh, Davison Petit Ferrer, he, he, um, he's a designer and we recently collaborated. Um, so this was his first uh, official uh, fashion week that just passed a couple of weeks ago, New York Men's Fashion Week. And because of COVID, he couldn't do the traditional uh, fashion show. So he came up with this idea. He, he built a character um, named Sean Frost, who was kind of like the black James Bond, if you will, from Brooklyn. And he casted me in it. And that is the fashion show. And between the, the marketing value, all the people that sponsored him, this young brother from Brooklyn, this young Haitian brother from East Flatbush, Brooklyn, um, be, be, because of all of the, the work that we put, to, put in there together, we're now looking at the opportunity to um, create a real film around this character. And I'm really excited about that. You know, um, uh, my goal now is to um, moving forward, going back into Hollywood. Um, you know, in regards to, we talk about typecasting. I, I think it's important for me now, while this portal is open, for me to, um, to implant what it is that I, how would, what it is I see for myself in the future moving on as an artist. And for me, it's about owning my content and, and um, telling narratives that, that changing the narrative in my community, telling stories that change the narrative. And, uh, you know, for anyone that says, you know, that believes Black Lives Matter, the, the way to show that is by setting up people or empowering people like myself, giving us the resources to do for ourselves and, and let us build our own table. And, and um, I aim to do that right now. You know, I, I just, you know, I love my job and I will always love being a thespian telling narrative. However, I just feel right now it's important that, you know, we can't keep complaining about award shows and not seeing enough of our stories being told that we don't take the time to actually pick up the mantle and try to do it for ourselves. So that's where I'm at right now. And, um, you know, taking it one step at a time, but I'm I'm really excited about moving forward in 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 that space, of owning my owning my story, changing the narrative. Sean Frost is the name. Yes, sir. Sean, All right. yeah, we should have him on. We should have yeah, him yeah. on. All right, we'll remember oh, that. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and thank thank. I just also want to compliment you on how great um you uh when they see us was and yeah my i grew up on the upper west side my and my cousin went to LaGuardia was one of the one of the center park five i would and if it's okay i would just like to uh speak with them well first of all we call them we call them the exonerated five exonerated five yeah yes ma'am and 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 um that story uh really was um that was one of the hardest jobs i ever had to do um you know one because i'm also in new york as you know and and I, I was living a very at-risk life right. when the, in 1989. It could have easily been Central Park 6, right. you know what I mean? And um, so I had that, but then I had the opportunity to speak with Mrs. McCray, and she was so gracious, and she was full of so much empathy and compassion. Not one, not one harsh word came out of this lady's mouth, and we spoke for two hours all the while she was suffering with pancreatic cancer. She, she passed before the show aired. She never got to see when they see us. But when I finished talking to her and the way she spoke about Bobby McCray, I got off the phone. I said, damn, Mike, I, I got to go back to my, my, my drawing board. You, you know, I'd had, I already had my, my, my process mapped out as to how I wanted to portray Bobby McCray. But after I spoke to Mrs. McCray, 
I'm like, wait a minute. It's not enough for me just to be truthful about what was on the paper. Because granted, he made some bad choices. He got going when the going got tough. Like, wrong answer, dude. End of story. You don't leave your family, especially in crisis. However, after speaking to his wife, I had to find out. I had to go deeper and find out what made him make that choice. And there's an old proverb that says, if a man cannot protect and provide for his family, then what is left of a man? And I believe that when Bobby McRae realized that his ignorance and his fear of the inner workings of the system was weaponized and used against him to, to wedge a, a, a nail, the final nail in his son's coffin, I believe the shame and the guilt of that, of that reality made him limp away. I believe he honestly felt that his family was better off without him. And as I'm a man now, and I'm a dad now, as a man of color from the hood with the same bad choices in my past as Bobby McRae, I, it was, that was one of the most painful mindsets to go in to feel like my family is better off without me. That, that, it was heartbreaking. And um, we had to have brief, grief counselors on the set. Uh, Ava, Ava DuVernay, she, um, we had grief counselors on the set every day because the pain and the, again, that generational trauma was so palpable on set that, um, you know, it was, whew, that was a hard one. Yeah. Um, well, again, Mike, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you uh, and telling us all these uh, amazing stories and being so yeah, candid. Thank, uh, thank you. Have thank a great so day, much. guys. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Take care now. Great interview. It was. He's like, he, he's so nice. He's so nice. He's so nice and very open. You should check out that thing where he, the, there's this little video that he did with. It's called Typecast, where it's basically him sitting in, in a room with all of his his characters. Uh, and it's, he, he does actually have a lot of range. Um, yeah. you know, he, he's, he's, people think that he basically always plays a gangster, but he doesn't. He's, his characters are really, in fact, really I think, wasn't he a cop and trapped in the closet? Uh, yeah, maybe he was a cop and gone, baby gone. Gone, baby gone. Yeah. Anyway, that was really interesting. And, and he has a, a, a cool perspective and learned a lot about what the acting process is like too. So yeah, that, that was fun. Really interesting. Yeah. And I really like Lovecraft. Yeah, love, I'm gonna have to watch more of that. I watched that one episode with the with the yeah. ballroom. I don't usually like what is that sci-fi? Is that what you, that mm -hmm. counts as? I don't usually like it, but I like it. Excellent. Well, we recommend it highly, and uh, we have to look forward to uh, Sean Frost. That sounds cool. So yeah. All right, rate and review us. Rate um, and review us. Thanks for coming on. Uh, don't watch any other sh shows. And, We're doing um, better than Buddha Judge, I believe. We are. We better Excellent. be doing better than the decisive decade. Yeah. The decisive decade. Well, that's alliterative. Well, uh, yeah. And, and don't watch uh, Mayor Pete's show uh, or listen, or listen to, it, to it or podcast, listen to yeah. it. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see you next week. Uh, don't do anything else except rate, know, wait to review, watch, watch, rate, review, watch, subscribe, like, share. Excellent. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>
I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.